Prodigal, we're so glad you joined us online today. We are in week three of our series, Half Truths, and today we're going to be exploring the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. Hey, if you haven't already downloaded our Prodigal Church app, now is a great time. Go ahead, pull out your phone, go to your app store and search for Prodigal Church. There you're going to find our digital bulletin where you can take notes. And also, if you haven't filled out our connect card, you can find our virtual connect card there. Our summer baptisms are coming up, but it's not too late to sign up. If you're interested in getting baptized or just want more information about what baptism is, we would love to answer your questions. You can send us an email at prodigalchurchfresno at gmail.com, or you can talk to any of our staff. This past Tuesday, our student ministries got together and played mini golf at Blackbeard's and had a blast. They're going to be meeting periodically throughout the summer, and the next hangout is on Tuesday the 20th. They're going to have a pool party and a barbecue. So if you have any questions about our student ministries or any of their events this summer, you can send us a message on social media or contact Pastor Addison. If you'd like to give to Prodigal Church, there's a few ways you can do so. You can use our app or our website. Just click the Give tab. We also have giving envelopes in the foyer and a giving kiosk. Thank you guys so much for your continued support and generosity. We're so glad you joined us for week three of Half Truths. Today, I'd like to speak to Christians. Um, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm sure that you'll certainly get something out of today's teaching, but the half-truth that we're going to address today um, typically comes out of the mouths of Christians. And when Christians say this phrase, they have no idea how judgmental they sound. They have no idea how unloving they sound. And it usually goes something like this. Some person, some non-Christian, is doing something that many Christians don't agree with. Okay, They disagree with. And they don't want to come across as unloving or judgmental, so they say something like this. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We're all sinners. Sin is sin, so one person's sin isn't any different than mine, any different than yours. And as a church, we need to love the sinner, hate the sin. Have you heard that phrase? Have you said that phrase? Uh, Non-Christians hate this phrase. They hate that Christians say it because we're supposed to be about love. And non-Christians think we're about hate because our actions do not show love. What happens 99% of the time when Christians use this phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, is that we never actually get around to the loving part. We just hate their sin. Now, whenever this half-truth is spoken, I'm convinced that the person saying it, their heart is in the right place. They're saying with a posture of, like, I'm a sinner too. We're all sinners. No sin's worse than the others. I'm not trying to condemn you. Who am I to condemn? My sins are as bad as your sins. Now, many of you are thinking right now, how in the world is this statement a half-truth, right? What possibly could be wrong with it? Love the sinner? Yeah, totally. Uh, hate the sin. Yeah, I, I think I agree with both statements. And with some of the other half-truths that we've looked at, a number of Christians believe that love the sin or hate the sin is actually found in Scripture. And perhaps even a statement that Jesus himself said. But Jesus never said this. Nor does the sentiment behind it reflect the kinds of things that Jesus did say. Rather, the phrase seems to have originated from St. Augustine, uh, a bishop who lived in North Africa in the late 4th and 5th centuries. 
and he was a, a church leader, and he was writing to nuns, asking them to remain chaste. And in the letter, he called them to have a love for mankind and a hatred of sins. It's doubtful that he th was creating this Christian catchphrase that we'd be using thousands of years later uh, as a way of saying that we dislike someone else's sins. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi wrote something similar in 1929 in his autobiography. Um, most readers stop at the first line, hate the sin, not the sinner. But the full statement reads, hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept which, though easy enough to understand, is rarely practiced, and that is why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. Gandhi was not advocating the idea of this half-truth. He was observing that most find it hard to hate another's sin without actually harming the sinner. And this is why the statement is so problematic. So let's break it down a bit. And as we dive in, my hope and prayer for us is that we begin to grasp the whole truth behind this half-truth. Now, the writers of the Bible do have a lot to say about sin. And I want to give you an overview of what the Bible says about sin because it is no small thing. It's not something we should gloss over. It's something serious. So in critiquing the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, I am not promoting nor condoning sin. I'm not critiquing sin. I'm critiquing a phrase about sin. Sin is serious. And the Bible has lots to say about it. Who has sinned? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. How damaging is sin? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The consequences of our sin always lead to death, destruction, damage. How seriously should we fight against sin? James 4.8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. This is a big deal. And because our sin is such a destructive force, our selfishness, our bigotry, our bad choices, because they have such devastating consequences in our relationships and with people that we don't even know, the writers of the scripture have lots of metaphors to describe what this sin is. One way they describe it is wandering off the path. When you take a wrong turn, you end up where you never wanted to be. Sin is like that. A very common way to describe sin is missing the mark. The Bible writers use this as a, to describe an archer who has really bad aim. And the arrow went where the archer did not want it to go. And you don't want to be standing near the missed target if the archer has bad aim. Missed shot arrows do damage. Sin is like that. Another metaphor is broken. Like a broken chair or a broken computer. It no longer does what it was designed to do. Sin is like that. Another use for sin was blemish. Like a blemished animal that was no longer fit for sacrifice to God. It's like the law of adolescence. The more excited you are for a date, the bigger the pimple you will get that day. Okay? A blemish. Sin is like that. Over 200 times the Bible uses the word crooked, bent, twisted, or distorted for sin. Another word is rebellion. It, it involves this defiance against God and his way. It's like the four-year-old girl whose mother told her, you can ride your bike as far down as this driveway and as far down as that driveway, but no farther. If you ride farther, I will spank you. And the four-year-old girl stuck out her booty and said, well, you better spank me because I got places to go. Okay? Rebellion. Sin is like that. Many times in Scripture, sin is referred to as 
owing a debt, right? Sin always comes at a price. Sometimes sin is pictured as swerving or going astray, like someone too drunk to walk or too drunk to drive safely, and there are massive consequences. Sin is like that. Sometimes sin is called lawlessness, because in those moments, uh, the laws of right and wrong, they don't apply to me. Sin is like that. Trespass. Sometimes it, the Bible refers to sin as trespass. I read a story of a, a minister who was trying to find a, a parking spot for his meeting, and he couldn't find one. Finally, he parked, wrote a note, and he left the note on, on his car, and he said, I've circled the block ten times. If I don't park here, I'll miss my appointment. Forgive us our trespasses. When he returned, he found a ticket from a police officer, which said, I have circled this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I will lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. And finally, the Bible refers to sin as impurity. James says to purify your heart. Paul says, keep yourselves pure to his disciple, Timothy. Purity. The FDA, Food and Drug Administration, uh, helps us discern and what food is good to eat, what food is bad to eat, what is pure, what is not pure. And it would be surprising for you to know what the FDA allows in many of our foods that we call clean, that we call approved, that we call pure. For example, apple butter. The FDA law says if it averages four or more per hundred grams, or if it averages five or more insects, not counting mites or aphids, the FDA will pull it. Otherwise, it's good to go. Wow. Mushrooms. The FDA says it cannot be sold if it has 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams. Okay? 19 maggots, you're good to go. Enjoy those mushrooms. Okay? 20, that's too much. Fig paste. If there are more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams, the FDA will toss it out. If there's 12 or less, that's okay. And if there are other insect body parts, that's also fine. Hot dogs. You don't want to know what's in hot dogs, okay? If they took all the impurities out of hot dogs, there would be nothing left, okay? The language of purity reminds us of something that we all know and think is true, that there is a way things are supposed to be, and sin moves us away from that. And it is serious. Sin is like that. It's real, it's destructive, it hurts me, it hurts others, so I'm not being soft on sin. But hating the sin of others, or pointing out the sin of others, is a highway to judgmentalism. And Christians love this highway. Judgmentalism is actually the sin that Jesus rebukes the most often. Romans 12.9 says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, this verse is often used to justify the statement, love the sinner, hate the sin. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. But notice Paul is not telling the readers to hate the sin in someone else's life. He's telling them to hate the evil that they themselves might be tempted to pursue in their own lives. Don't pretend to show love, then judge in the very next breath. No, let love be genuine, as Paul says. Let love be genuine, without judgment. My selfishness, my greed, my deception, my pride, anything that will keep me from loving sincerely, Paul says, hate that. Jesus never says, love the sinner. 
He says, love your neighbor. So if we are called to love our neighbors, and in the Sermon on the Mount, we're also called to love our enemies, why doesn't Jesus ever say, love the sinner? Well, first, it would be redundant, right? Since neighbor and enemy are both sinners. Every sinner is my neighbor, and some are also my enemy. Since all of us are sinners, telling us to love our neighbor covers everything already. It would be redundant. And more importantly, I think Jesus knew that if he had commanded his disciples, if he had commanded his future disciples, you, me, that we would begin looking at other people more as sinners than neighbors. If I love you more as a sinner than as a neighbor, then I am bound to focus in on your sin. I will start looking for all the things that are wrong with you, and perhaps without intending it, I will begin to think of our relationship like this. You are a sinner, but I graciously choose to love you anyways. And if this sounds pompous and self-righteous and puffed up, then you have perceived it correctly. If Jesus would have said, love the sinner, his followers would have started looking for sinners. We would have started dividing up the world between sinners and then good, right people who think and believe just like us. And then we get all puffed up and say, come, look at me loving all those sinners. It's so interesting that Jesus hangs out with sinners all the time, but he never says, I love you, but I hate what you're doing. I hate your sin. Instead, he talks with them about God's mercy, God's grace, God's acceptance, God's forgiveness, and he encourages them to follow him. In fact, the only time in the Gospels when Jesus expresses hatred of sin, it's toward the religious people, the loveless judging spirit inside religious people of his day and inside religious people of our day. Jesus gets all worked up over that sin. Look at this amazing story in John 8. At dawn, he, Jesus, again appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Before we see someone as a sinner, we must see them as a person. This woman caught in adultery. Jesus sees the woman first, the person first. And after that, they can have conversations and discuss. But the Pharisees, they don't see that. They see her actions. They see her behavior. They don't see her story. All they see is a woman caught in adultery. So love the sinner, hate the sin is so problematic because we're already viewing people through their sin. It's so hard for us to see their humanity when we all we see is their sin. Just think about your own heart. Is there a certain behavior that gives you a deep, almost visceral feeling or response 
that it's hard to look at people who engage in that with any sort of affection or humanity. It's almost impossible to do without the Spirit of Christ, to draw a clean line between our feelings about some things and the people who engage in those same things. This is difficult stuff, maybe the most difficult stuff, but we need the supernatural Spirit of God compelling us, drawing us towards love and grace and towards their humanity. And seeing that in the midst of ours, it takes time. It might take your whole life to learn to love someone that you have hated, to learn to love a group of people that you have hated. Love has a speed, and its speed is slow. We're all on this journey. Now, it is so very difficult to stop being judgmental because it often takes us to view the world in an entirely different way. We don't see ourselves as being judgmental. We, just see, we see ourselves as seeing the world the way it is. But that's not true. We don't see the way the world is. We see the world the way we are. And it's going to take God's uh, work and spirit in our lives and Christ's love to conform us into the image of Christ. If someone asked me to change a behavior, I believe I could do it if I tried. But if someone asked me to change my worldview or to view people differently, I'm not sure I could. Such is the way of judgment. Human beings judge one another by our external actions. God judges by our internal choices. Picture a neurotic person who has a pathological horror of cats. Okay? But yet, he may find himself forced to pick up a cat for some good moral reason. Perhaps it was attacking a child. It is quite possible that in God's eyes, this person's courage was greater than someone winning a Purple Heart. When a man is abused from his childhood, and he is taught that cruelty is actually the right thing, and he, later on in his life, does some tiny little human kindness instead of the cruelty that he might have committed. And he risks being sneered by all those who have affirmed him in his life. He may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I would do if we gave up our life for our friend. And it may be true the other way around. For some of us who seem like such nice people, we may have, in fact, done so little with our good upbringing in fortunate circumstances that really, that we really are worse off than those people that we call wretched sinners. This is why we don't judge. This is why we're told not to judge. We only see the repercussions of a person's decision, but God doesn't judge them on the external, but on the internal. And Jesus is clear, in the world to come, there will be surprises. Oh yes, there will be surprises. Christians, it's not about moral absolutes. Throughout church history, when the church has had the most power is when the church becomes the most corrupt. In John Calvin's day, Geneva, Switzerland, supposed to be this beautiful Christian utopia where Christian law and morals reigned. Church attendance was compulsory. It was the law. If you didn't go to the church on Sunday, you'd be arrested in 16th century Geneva. 
Here were some of the other things that were forbidden. Feasting, dancing, singing, pictures, statues, church bells, organs, wearing rouge, jewelry, gambling, playing cards, or naming children after anyone but figures in the Bible. Those things were all against the law. Do you want to live in the Christian utopia from 500 years ago in Geneva, Switzerland? A father who named his son Claude, which is a name not found in the Bible, spent four days in jail, as did a woman whose hair reached an immoral height. Okay, I'm not making this up. There is a height in which a woman's hair will then become immoral. A child who struck his parents was beheaded in Geneva. John Calvin's stepson and daughter-in-law were caught in sexual misconduct. Both were beheaded. John Calvin himself burned Michael Servetus alive as a heretic because he did not believe in the Trinity. When the church turns into the moral police, we've got the power now, we can pass all the laws that we want. It doesn't work, it does the opposite. The world does not need more Christians pointing out what's wrong with the world. Sometimes if we allow ourselves to see people as sinners, we begin to think that we're better than them. And we have got it all wrong. Christians love pointing out what we disagree with, love pointing out what we don't like. Stop. Let us not be known for what we are against. Let us be known for what we are for. We are not called to be the morality police of the world, making sure that everyone knows uh, what they're doing wrong. That's not our job. We are called to love people, not draw lines between us and them. Love crosses lines. This is something that Sarah and I are very intentional about with our children. We don't want our kids to have a judgmental bone in their bodies. We want them to know what's right and wrong, of course. But we don't want them to only see the world through what is right and wrong. To see people as right and wrong. Because then we just foster this posture of us versus them. And that's just exhausting. It's hard to raise children that are righteous without making them self-righteous. It's hard to create a Christian community that is righteous without it becoming self-righteous. Us versus them. They're bad out there. We're good in here. It's dangerous out there. It's safe in here. We're right. You're wrong. It's so easy, so terribly easy for those of us who use the word sin to take pride in our correct beliefs. All the wrong things I've never done. It's so easy, so terribly easy for people like me to see sin in people out there and miss the sin right here. And when we do this, when we end up hurting people. We end up not loving people. And we don't even know that we're not loving people. So often, love the sinner, hate the sin means we put loving people on the back burner and we just start hating their sin. Let's not do that. Instead of love the sinner, hate the sin, let's stop after the first word. Love. That's the whole truth behind the half-truth. I'm not washing over sin. Sin is a destructive force in our lives. It hurts us. It hurts our family. 
It hurts people all around us. It hurts our world. It hurts God's heart. How much sin is in our state, the state of California? Oh my goodness, wow. It's sin of Palooza out there, right? How much sin is in this church? Wow, my goodness. It's sin of Palooza in here. I know, I meet with all of you as part of my job. How much sin is in my heart? Wow, my goodness. Sin of Palooza in here. I know this. There's at least as much sin in here to keep Jesus busy for the next several decades if he had nothing else to do. So let's love. Let's hate the sin in us and let's be the world's leading experts, not in pointing out the sins out there, but in bringing our sins to the cross, to bringing them to Jesus and allowing his embrace to help us lead the life of sin like the woman in John 8. Jesus desires to remove our blemish, to remove our transgressions, to remove how we've missed the mark, to remove all the things that we have done to hurt ourselves and others, to remove the sin in our lives. And it is because of the cross of Christ that we have freedom from the power of sin. He trumped it. He broke it. He overcame sin and death because we can't. And we have full, abundant life in him. Salvation because of Jesus. God, I pray that we begin to show your love and grace. That we love. And the judgmentalism that we ourselves are infected with, that you would help us to see the humanity in others, see the goodness and the, the, the truth and the beauty. Rather than seeing them as sinners, may we see them as neighbors and love them. We need you for this, God. Help us to see the good. This is difficult stuff. We need your help in this. Transform our hearts and make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week is the finale of our Half-Truth Sermon Series, and we will tackle maybe the question of all questions. Does everything happen for a reason? We can't wait. We're so looking forward to it. And if you are watching this before our 10 a.m. Sunday morning service, we have an incredible experience for our kids today. We've got a water slide out there for our PC Kids Ministry for our summer Sunday fun day. So we want to encourage you to come visit us in person, even though you will hear the sermon in a different way, but it'll be the same one. We look forward to seeing you in person this week or next week. Peace the Middle East.